Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Has this market, has this market become a slow motion train wreck? Sure seems like it. After a hideous day where we started strong and then reversed into the red, Dow only plunging 245 points, S&P plummeted 0.66%, but the Nasdaq nosed with 1.63%. Do we need to start thinking about selling everything, going entirely into cash, or is this just business as usual in a highly exaggerated form? Do we have some other analogs we can rely upon? Listen, in my whole career, I've only counted in selling everything four times. October 15th of 1987, October 8th of 1998, March of 2000, and October of 2008. Three were dead right, and one was dead wrong, and almost destroyed my hedge fund. If you want to understand today's breakdown, where the Dow was up 352 points, then fell to down 566 points before rallying to only close, only close off 245 points, you need to have some context, which means knowing how these four situations I just described played out. First, the crash of 87. Going into the year, things looked pretty darn good, just like this year. The economy had accelerated, just like this year. And our stock market was flooded with Japanese money, not like this year. In the 80s, the Japanese ruled the financial world, and they had no qualms about purchasing stocks at literally any price. They drove up valuations to absurd levels. At the peak, the Dow was selling at 29 times earnings, which is an unsustainable level. Even an incredibly robust economy crash occurred in two parts. First, we shed about 500 points from the 2700 level in the hideous beginning of October. Sound familiar? Then we had Black Monday and Terrible Tuesday, which knocked off about 800 points in two days. All told, market lost nearly 60% of its value in a few weeks' time. Those losses made today's session look like a child's play. How'd that come to pass? Okay, a group of charlatans have been selling something called portfolio insurance, which basically used futures to stop out any fund down about 5%. But the S&P futures were relatively new back then. They were raw. They didn't work as advertised. Down 5%, the insurance kicked in, which led to a flood of sell orders and a wipeout of all the bids, both on the NYSE and the NASDAQ. It was like throwing gasoline on an already burning building. The result? The Black Monday crash. Now, here's the thing. The 87 crash was based on nothing more than valuation and these failed portfolio insurance products, which ended up not insuring anything. But the actual economy was doing just fine. A year later, even if you bought right before the crash, you'd made back all your losses. If you were in cash, like we were at my hedge fund because Karen Kramer didn't like the action, the crash was an amazing buying opportunity. I was very right in 87, but I was very wrong in October of 1998 when I said, get out. The market had been weak for much of September as long-term capital as a huge, stupid hedge fund had blown itself up and needed to unwind some very large positions. 
may not sound like a big deal, but long-term capital threatened to bring down many banks, yet the Fed was oblivious to the whole situation. I sensed a total collapse, or feared of one maybe, perhaps because my own fund, suffering from ill-timed opening, experienced massive redemptions. The absolute low point of the decline at noon on October 8th, I panicked and I wrote a piece called Get Out Now for the brand new TheStreet.com. At 2 p.m., Alan Greenspan came to a census, announcing an emergency rate cut with lots of liquidity to be injected. I ate crow, reverse course. More importantly, the market took off and never looked back. My get-out-now call is perhaps the worst mistake I've ever made, at least professionally. I do not want to repeat that mistake if the Fed is willing to change course this time, and it still can. Here's what's in the back of my mind. They did it once. They can do it again. They can do it again. Unlike 1998, I nailed the dot-com crash in 2000. We had a remarkable run in the NASDAQ in the late 90s. I pressed my bets even as late as the first week of March of 2000. Then the rally accelerated with most tech stocks flying into the stratosphere. Two and a half weeks later, I told people to sell and went into cash for the most part with some gigantic NASDAQ short positions. Then the whole edifice collapsed. How did I know it was coming? Pretty easy. The stock of the street.com. I, I saw the Nasdaq rollover witness the incredible decline of our own stock price, along with many others, as the smarter operators flooded the market with new shares. There were no bids for most of these Nasdaq-listed stocks, meaning no one was buying. Following months, wiped out more than a trillion dollars of capital, turned a whole generation of investors against the stock market. They never came back. But the overall impact of the economy was negligible. Dot-com crash was all about ridiculous overvaluation, nothing else. So while the tech-heavy Nasdaq got obliterated, the more diversified S&P 500 barely got dinged. Now, let's relate it to current. As much as Fang, and that's the Apple and Amazon one, seems overvalued, these stocks are actually much cheaper after today than almost all the tech portion of the Nasdaq 100 was back then. So I would not be shouting like I did in March of, of 2000 that it's time to go. Finally, there's the financial crisis in 2008. Oh, boy, this was systemic in nature, deeply rooted in the economy. Remember, the others weren't, okay? Deeply rooted. The Federal Reserve pushed us over the brink with tone-deaf series of rate hikes. Mmm. They know nothing! Obviously, there were a lot of other problems, but if the Fed had been more dovish, the crisis would have been much less severe. Unfortunately, the Fed believed the economy was strong. They couldn't see the rot underneath back then, and the rest of us paid for their cluelessness. Sound familiar? Now, I bring up these four examples because right now they are so darn relevant, it's incredible. we got our own slow-motion train wreck. And as much as it pains me to say this, the current situation combines actually some of the worst characteristics of those four past breakdowns. 87, the machines ran roughshod over the buyers. It was portfolio assurance back then. Now it's algorithms and ETFs. They're like machine guns mowing down any buyers. Like we saw today. We've been down for 16 out of the last 21 sessions this month, which is very much like October of 87. Except at least this time we only have two more days until we get mercifully to November. The dot-com bomb in 2000, that went off because of reckless underwriting. The economy was robust, but the bankers flooded the market with too many low-quality Internet IPOs and secondary offerings, then the whole thing collapsed under its own weight. When I told people to get into cash in October of 2008, when the Dow was around 10200 I got a lot of hate. Got a lot of hate mail. The conventional wisdom was that I was being insanely irresponsible. Of course, if you listen to me, you sidestepped the hideous decline down to the 6,500s in March of 2009. Now, in 1998, I screwed up. I misjudged the resolve of the Fed. Just a few days before Greenspan's emergency rate cut, he'd been reassuring us about the strength of the system. I figured he was totally clueless. But once he got a clue, he acted very quickly and he did the right thing. Which brings me back full circle to today's situation. Right now, the stock market is signaling that the economy's in for pretty rapid deterioration, just like 2008. We have a Fed that's lamentably unaware of the danger, like 2008. 
And we have a president seemingly hell-bent on putting tariffs on everything the Chinese sell unless they change their ways. That's like nothing we've ever seen. Both are horrendous headwinds more than that later. But fortunately, there's no systemic risk here. We're looking at a normal cyclical downturn, though, linked with some 87-style overvaluations. And here's where I come out. Right now, the Fed is making the same mistakes as in 2007. They are. They're totally misjudging how weak some major parts of the economy are. Thing is, even strong economies can roll over very quickly. Don't they know that? Autos, semiconductors, chemicals, paper, housing, construction, they're all going south. That's what the stock market is screaming. But the Fed's tone deaf to, tef, tone deaf to its cries for help. I will say this, though. If the Fed doesn't reverse course like it did in 98, then we could continue along, uh, not a 2007 path, but a 1987 road. Especially if the president keeps slapping tariffs on the Chinese. It seems obvious to me. It's not good for stocks. You may like it for the country. It's not good for stocks. Two different things, maybe. Bottom line, I tell you to get out now. But I've been saying this market's no good for weeks and weeks on end. My main fear is that we could have a mini version of 2008 if the Fed doesn't change course. Or perhaps a 1987 if the machines get too far out of control. Our one hope, if Fed Chief Jerome Powell actually starts listening to the stock market and wakes up to the damage that tariffs can do to the economy, then maybe he'll shift gears, just like Greenspan did in 98. Then we can bottom and even roar higher. But as long as Powell stays committed to the December hike and three more next year, lockstep without thinking and blinders, and the president stays committed to expanding his tariffs, then history says we got more downside no matter what. Jeff in Tennessee. Jeff. Booyah from Rocky Top. All right, man. Good to have you on the show. Yes, sir. Jim, I was curious if the oil majors, BP and Total, have pulled back enough to be accidental high yielders. Um, I am saying yes and telling members of uh, the ActionAlertsPlus.com club that they can buy BP, the old British Petroleum, because it yields 6%. So far, I've been wrong. But I agree. It's an accidental high yielder. So far, I've been wrong. I like to say both. Henry in Texas. Henry. Hey, Jim. Happy October 29th. Oh, um, man. I had a question about Intel today. Yeah. Uh, Intel has had a big year, rising uh, positive news about uh, new contracts and upgraded satellites to almost 500% gains. Do you think uh, Intelsat and other communications companies working in emerging markets like Africa and South America are good ideas for the future? Well, this has been a rocket ship. I mean, it was in February, it was a two, and now it's a 27. My take is, is that I don't really care uh, how great it is. I would take out half right now, and then you could let the rest run. But I would not buy, put new capital in that situation. All right, look, the market's not that good right now. The Fed and the president will determine if we bottom. But I think we may have more downside if things don't change. Except the Fed. We money tonight. Which is more toxic for this market? The Fed or the president's tariffs? I'm giving my take. Then hats off to Red Hat and IBM. The CEOs of both companies join me here tonight after their $34 billion deal. And from winter boots to down jackets, Columbia Sportswear can help protect you from the elements even in this market. But after earnings, is the stock feeling the chill? I'm sizing up the company with the CEO. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
today's craziness, here's a relevant question. What's more toxic for this market? Still higher tariffs on Chinese goods? Or a Federal Reserve that keeps tightening and tightening and tightening? Honestly, it's a tough call. At this point, both are just plain horrendous for stocks, and the combination of two is even worse. Today, for example, the market was cruising. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. You won't just find dandy until the Trump administration let it be known that it's going to put tariffs on all Chinese products if the next round of talks between President Trump and President Xi bring no resolution. We then saw a horrific plunge that took down pretty much everything. It makes a ton of sense. See, it's rational. The market's beginning to respect the fact that Trump simply will not let the Dow Jones Industrial Average interfere with his desire to prosecute a Cold War on all fronts against the Chinese. In the same way we spent decades pressuring the Soviet Union, it's starting to look like that with China. At this point, it's no longer just about trade, and that makes it harder to resolve. But Wall Street has never been a fan of the trade war to begin with, and lately the pain has started spreading to Main Street, too. Whether or not you think the policy is justified, it's just bad for stocks, period. But is it as bad as the Fed? This morning, we got some pretty tame personal income and consumption numbers, which brought a sigh of relief from investors who fear the Fed will just keep raising rates with one more hike planned in December and three next year. The figures were not too hot, not too cold. Yes, the fabled Goldilocks scenario, which investors thought could soothe the hawks in the Federal Reserve, including Cleveland Fed President Loretta Meister. And Meister, I, I got to tell you, I don't know if you remember on Friday, she kiboshed a nascent rally with some tough talk. And I think it was unnecessary talk about how wild swings in the stock market won't deter thinking. Unfortunately, just like President Trump, I think the Fed is implacable. I doubt today's numbers will cause them to change their minds, just as Trump is going to stick with his tariffs, regardless of the action in the stock market. I believe it's right. Crazy thing is how dumb the market can be. For much of the day, the retailers roared higher on a belief that the personal income consumption figures, coupled with continued weakness in the shares of Amazon, would cause the Federal Reserve to be more accommodative, resulting in a better holiday season. But then we learned of the new tariffs, which certainly would hurt the retailers, which by and large import a huge percentage of goods from China. So that group took a header, making everyone who bought them at the top today look pretty darn stupid. In fact, every attempt to bottom fish in this market has made people look like bozos, with the exception of those who bought Red Hat during Friday's horrendous session. There's no respite for the weary bulls as the bears maul everything in sight. So there is no lesser of two evils here. The Fed's insistence on tightening regardless of the data makes for a precipitous course that can't be corrected. The presence and transitions on tariffs make it difficult to believe that we'll get any help from worldwide growth. If anything, higher rates and higher taxes are setting us up for a very difficult end of the year, not to mention 2019, unless something's done to ameliorate those two different houses of pain. A house of pain. Sure, we've gotten positive action from a scattering of sectors. The recession stocks tried to make a stand before being overwhelmed by sellers, as did the banks, which shouldn't have been up in the first place. But the overall sense of this market is that there's no place to hide, particularly in the dreaded fang names, especially now that Amazon and Alphabet both allegedly disappointed. I want to be constructive here. I want to be less hard line. But unless someone from the Fed takes notice of the rot underneath this economy and someone from the White House recognizes that our goal with China is to get them to play fair, not to humiliate them across every corner of the earth, then this market's going to keep falling. Between the intransigence of the Fed and the intransigence of the president, 
Things are not looking good for stocks. The one silver lining, both these problems are man-made, which means they can be solved. But first, our leaders need to be willing to change their minds. And so far, neither seems likely to occur. Fred, New York. Fred! Jimmy, thanks for all you do for us home gamers, man. We appreciate you out here, buddy. Ah, you're very kind. Thank you, buddy. Jimmy, calling you about uh, Alibaba. They're getting killed. Should I add to my position? No, you can't. You can't. We got a Cold War going on with the Chinese, and I've been right to say stay out of these stocks. I'm doubling down on my stay out of these stocks unless something changes. I don't see any changes. No, you you can't own Chinese stocks. Tough enough to own American stocks. All right. The Fed and the president, double trouble. Unless they recognize the damage, things, well, let's just say, uh, don't be here. Much more mad money ahead. A big blue just announced it will buy Red Hat to get in the new hybrid cloud industry, or at least to try to dominate it. The CEOs explain it all just ahead. Then, after a wild ride for the Dow today, I'm eyeing one company that managed to stay in the green. Do not miss my exclusive to Columbia Sportswear. And how tech, taxes, and homelessness are getting some of Silicon Valley's top leaders talking. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO of Salesforce. Hear how he comes down on Proposition C, San Francisco's most contentious measure this election season. So stick with Kramer. Coming up is Big Blue on Cloud9. IBM is making its biggest acquisition ever, and Kramer sits down with both CEOs. This, to me, is resetting the entire cloud landscape, and it's the next chapter of Cloud Gym. When Mad Money returns... let this hideous day or the fact that the markets become a slow motion train wreck distract us from the fact that there are still pockets of good news. For example, this weekend, we learned that IBM will be acquiring Red Hat, the open source software kingpin that's integral to helping other businesses embrace the cloud. It's one of our cloud kings. IBM is paying $190 per share in cash, which is why Red Hat stock surged nearly $53 or 45% today. It's a huge deal for both companies. Red Hat had been down in the dumps after a couple of less than perfect quarters. IBM is eager to double down on its faster growing businesses in order to diversify away from its slower legacy divisions. And after the latest quarter, which was greeted with a thud by the analyst community, I think they could use Red Hat's help, and yes, vice versa. While IBM stock was punished today, I think it's a very good move for this company, despite what looks to be a high price tag, which is why we need to take a closer look at what it means for IBM and the cloud. Earlier today, we got a chance to check in with Ginny Rometty, the chair and CEO of IBM, and Jim Whitehurst, he's the CEO of Red Hat, to learn more about this transformative deal. And it is transformative, so take a look. Ginny and Jim, great to have you here. Thank you for coming on Mad Money. Ginny, you have often spoken to us about reinvention of IBM and how important it is. How important it is to have a strong IBM for the country. This is the reinvention we're looking for. It is. This, is, this to me, is resetting the entire cloud landscape. And it's the next chapter of cloud, Jim. Because as, as this Jim and I have often talked, the first 20% of the cloud was really the easy stuff that clients have done. This next 80 is mission-critical, secure work that's got to move. And that's what this is about. So we're reinventing IBM to be the number one undisputed Okay, because that was a bold claim at the end of the call. I was going yep. to ask you. I mean, that is gutsy thing to say, Jim. Yes. It's a $1 trillion market, $1 trillion emerging market. And I just, you know, Jim and I were both talking since we've announced this, hundreds of notes from clients, all reinforcing, yes, this is what we need. This is perfect. And what they need is, as they move this 80%, mm. they need someone who's going to put it, we call it hybrid cloud. And what that means is 
depending on the kind of work you're doing, maybe it's data that has to stay on my premise in a private cloud. It, maybe it's okay to go to a public. Maybe it's okay to go to, to Amazon or AWS, IBM cloud. But boy, somebody's got to manage all of that, decide how to move it, keep it secure, and don't lock me in on an answer. Gotcha. And that's what Jim and I exactly. get the choice to chance well, to do together. But Jim, when you know we've been gigantic supporters of Red Hat Absolutely. for years and years, ever since you got there. Uh, I know that you've taught me that you're Switzerland. But yes. Now, so can you be Switzerland and at the same time go up against what could be Amazon Web Services and, and Azure, Microsoft? Well, yes, we can. And let me talk about a couple aspects of that. So first off, as we've talked about it, we're keeping Red Red. So Red Hat Salesforce, Red Hat's product suite is going to be completely neutral. So we'll continue to work with Microsoft, uh, Google, Amazon, others, and our sales teams won't be somehow incented to sell against that, right? Okay. So we'll continue to do that. And I think because of what we can do to accelerate drive of workload onto kind of a cloud-native platform, we can actually help accelerate Amazon, Google, Alibaba, and Microsoft's businesses. At the same time, then, IBM can be opinionated, so they can take what we're doing, okay. do it in a right. native form, so all of a sudden on IBM's cloud, you can have, as we're saying, firmware to application security, you can have higher performance. So yeah, we can do both. All right, well, Jim, you're wearing blue shirt, you're wearing jeans, you're wearing red shoes. This is not an IBM or outfit. How do you work out these cultures? Yeah. Oh, look at me, come on. Oh. Did you know that purple is a combination of, of blue and red? I okay. had not thought about yes, that. Right. I, Roy G. Biv, absolutely, yeah. you're right. But no, it is, it's, it's, it, there are different North Carolina Rebel, your guys, pretty standard. No, the, not no, there no, no, no. For both. that's not the IBM of today. Okay. Not one bit, right? Okay. And so I think this is, to us, Jim, this is nothing about, this is only about growth. So okay. this is about growth. And what Jim just said about we're going to be able to grow horizontally because mm -hmm. Jim's challenge is scale. And I can scale right. him into every corner of the enterprise market. And therefore you can and move therefore a that's good for me. And this I can, can Even though needle. people are saying, I didn't mean to interrupt, but 4, it only adds 4% to revenues. But you're talking only about 200 basis points. 200 basis points, Cogger, five right. years, right. not back end loaded. And remember, I'm a high value model that says low single digit revenue, mid single digit PTI, high single digit EPS. So four right. points is huge, yeah. as you said, right? So right. No, I agree. I think you do. I'm listening to the critics. And someone's, I, some of the people are saying, well, listen, their balance sheet is stretched. And you. Now, your 4.7% notes due February 2046, I just checked. They're off 2.625% sh uh, points. Should we be concerned Not about the balance sheet? Not at all. Well, walk I mean, us through so because the dividend matters tremendously to our viewers. It does. And I want your viewers to be absolutely clear okay. that we are going to continue to grow our dividend. Okay. And it is more than safe. When I say financial flexibility and ample for us, uh, we're going to pay its cash and debt. But remember, we're already strong investment grade. Right. And even with this, we're strong investment grade. And Jim, as we said, we're just prudent. We'll be back to what we target as our normal leverage ratio okay. two years. And so, and that is, and we're conservative, right? That's right. mid to high single A. So that's why, and I always want to remind all your viewers, right? We ended last quarter 15 billion of cash, 12 billion free cash flow. So we have plenty for inorganic and organic and strong dividend. Last quarter, tough one. Stock down 20% for the year. Mistake by Wall Street, not understanding what you, or is this the change that people should start recognizing what, where IBM's really going? It's both. Last quarter, as you know, we were flat at constant currency, as right. you know. And one of the biggest things that happened last quarter, big success, we returned our margins to flat year to year. Yeah, first time really in good. three years. And underneath it, our services businesses grew. And that, actually, the margin improvement, first time in five. I mean, really 
good progress on all elements of Even the Even though some cognitive, some worries. Yes, that, I, I would say everyone looked at that. We talked about what it right. was. But this is also, this is a really key point. This combination is going to lift all of IBM. That includes analytics, AI. That includes our services business. And as I told my whole team this morning, I, I spent the day with Jim's team, day mm -hmm. with ours. This is about lifting all of IBM, which is why we're so bullish about saying this is a, this is absolutely accelerates our high value model. So not just revenue growth, okay. accretive year one on free cash flow and gross margins. Okay, yeah. very important. Now, Jim, how do you keep your people? And how do you incent Jim to stay? Because he's been a big hero of ours. He's staying. Well, look, uh, this is the greatest thing that we can do in terms of accelerating our business and growing our uh, our relationships with customers. So this will accelerate our growth. It'll allow us to hire more people faster. And so our people in general are very excited about this. This gives us an opportunity to, for them to grow their career paths. Um, and as we say, we, we're very passionate about open source. If there any way to make sure open source is the dominant platform going forward, you know, this will allow open source to do that. Yeah. Okay. Now, let me ask you, Jenny, because you have told us Look, you, IBM is a really important company to our country, to the world, to the people who work there. Is this your legacy going forward? Or there are some people who say, listen, she's betting the company. She's done a series of uh, many, many deals. But this is the big, this is one of the biggest deals of all time. Is this the legacy that you want? This is going to be a critical part of IBM's future. And so I think of it as the most important thing for our customers and for our business, or I wouldn't have done it. And this is about being number one. IBM is number one in hybrid cloud, mission critical, $1 trillion marketplace. Together we are the champions for open. Jim, this moves the cloud debate and battle to open versus proprietary, meaning we believe Switzerland, we should be able to, and our clients want to move things around. So this is absolutely important. It is a game changer to IBM, Do, and we know it's the right thing. Should we be concerned at all? The, the narrative last week was that the cloud is slowing. The data center is is. So I've got with two people who can tell me that that's not right, that that's the wrong narrative, and I would believe you guys. Is yeah. it slowing? Yeah. Look, the first 20%, the easy stuff, behind us. Okay. The 80s in front of us, and that's what this is refashioning for. Yeah, I'd say from our perspective, we're seeing uh, an acceleration uh, as customers start to work on that more difficult 80%, because that's where we're particularly strong, because we are both, we're strong on-premise, and we have positions in cloud, different positions in cloud, but positions in cloud. And so that next 80% is where we're in the best possible position to win. I, this is great for IBM. It great, is. great for Red Hat shareholders. Great for both. Thank you so much to Thank both you. of you for coming on Man Money. That's Jenny Rometty. She's chairman, president, and CEO of IBM. And Jim Whitehurst, president and CEO of Red Hat. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been a brutal earnings season. Even when a company delivers a phenomenal blowout quarter, its stock might go down anyway, just because it had the misfortune of reporting on a bad day. Take Columbia Sportswear, the apparel maker you'll recognize as Columbia, Sorrel, Mountain Hardware, and Prana, Bum, many other names. Last Thursday, this company reported a monster top and bottom line beat, and management even raised their full year forecast substantially for the third straight quarter in a row. Yet what happened? Well, Columbia stock sold off the next day, pulling back about 2% because Friday was such an ugly session. This move seemed downright crazy to me, and upon further review, the stock came roaring back, vaulting $4 or 5% today. If you bought Columbia in the weakness on Friday, you had a nice win here. And I think that the stock might have more upside. 
Uh, but don't take this from me. Let's dig deep with Tim Boyle, the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. Get a better sense of the quarter where the company's headed. Mr. Boyle, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, it's great to be with you. Well, Tim, I think a lot of people don't know. First, storied history, 80 years. Second, 20 years public, of which you've trounced the S&P more than twice better. What is the secret of your company to have accelerating revenue growth after all those years? Well, you know, it's a, it's a company that's controlled by the family, but it's a, it's a publicly held company, and we take our, our uh, obligations to our shareholders very seriously. We have an enormously strong management team uh, that we've continued to improve. Uh, we have a global business, which, you know, uh, sometimes people uh, get confused about the impact of the U.S. weather on the company. We have a global business, and we have a very strong board that, that makes sure that management is focused on the right things, which is high returns for our shareholders. Now, this most recent guide-up, it seems to be directly connected with what you've been doing with Project Connect. And I want people to understand that because a lot of people have these different projects and companies. They never amount to anything. This one seems to be materially improving your company. Well, uh, you know, um, when you've been in business 80 years and, and been a public company for 20, and then the business has really changed from being a, a, a local domestic uh, distribution uh, company to a global company, you, you develop habits, workarounds, uh, activities that, are, that don't bring the business forward. So we, we uh, spent really the last 18 months on this project internally called Connect, which is an opportunity for us to streamline the business, to really bring it into the, 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 uh, the current time and make sure that we're set up uh, for efficiently running a big business. And, and frankly, the, the returns have been quite good. Uh, we're just now starting to see those returns, and we expect that the 2019 and 20 and beyond will really be where we, we find significant savings and significant improvements in the, the business efficiently. All right, efficiencies. Now, uh, you do talk in your conference call about, uh, about the... $200 billion round of tariffs today. We heard that the president's talking about how he has to put tariffs on everything if the Chinese don't come to the table and give in. Uh, you've got a big business in China, and you also source from China. Only 10% of your total imported value into the U.S. is from China. But what would it mean if the president put uh, tariffs on everything that we import from China? What would it mean for Colombia? What would it mean for world trade, you think? Well, uh, let me first talk about what it would do for Colombia. So we have a global business. Uh, you know, in the high 30% of our total business is outside the U.S. We have a big business in China. I think it would hurt our Chinese business. Um, our U.S. business is, uh, as you said earlier, is, is supported by uh, products sourced from all over the world. But I think it would do significant damage to the U.S. economy to have that kind of impact on tariffs. You know, our, our categories of merchandise, apparel, footwear, are already some of the, some of the most heavily tariffed uh, in the United States and really in the world. And we've, we find that one of our strengths is navigating these uh, significant tariffs in order to make sure that we, we offer consumers the best product at the best price. But when you, when you throw tariffs on a, on a sourcing country like China that's so important for the rest of the world and, and so important for the U.S., there's, there's no way it's going to mean anything other than higher prices for consumers in the U.S. Okay. Uh, now, I know that I think people have been willing to accept, uh, let's say, premium prices from your company because you have been uh, probably the most uh, – you, you use a great term. You say your DNA uh, is uh, in technology, basically, but you also are tied in with fashion – 
This has been a winning formula for you guys. How important is just thought influencers? Like uh, the Omni Heat 3D gets recommended by Outside, by Gear Junkie. These allow you to charge a premium price no matter what, don't they? Right. So, our, our, uh, again, this business has very low barriers to entry. The apparel and footwear business are, are easy to get into. So you have to be able to differentiate yourself. So, you know, we use lots of um, developed uh, innovations technologies that we've developed in-house with our team of scientists that really work heavily on on solving problems for people who like to spend time outdoors. Now that coupled with my mom that nobody can replicate has really been a winning formula for the company. I got it. You, you can't leave it at that. Just tell people about your mom because they'll be saying, what is he talking about? He's a <laughs> businessman. Please tell us. <laughs> well, you know, our company was founded by my grandparents, and my mom and I took over the business when my dad died. It was a tiny little business. Uh, frankly, the year my dad died, the company was doing a million dollars in business. The next year, my mom and I took it over. We went to half a million, and we struggled mightily, but we had some big help from our neighbor here in Portland. Uh, we had one of the early employees at Nike helped us on a, on a board of advisors that helped us find our way. And, you know, we've really been able to build the business basically using the formula where we design and market from Portland and we s distribute globally and we source globally. And that's really been about expanding the unique uh, points of differentiation for the company, which frankly have been our innovations and our styles and my mom. Well, though, congratulations on 80 amazing years and 20 years public where you've doubled, more than doubled the S&P. Great to speak to you. That's Tim Boyle, Columbia Sportsman, President and CEO, a remarkable company, a technological apparel marvel. They have money's back into them. It is time. It's time for the Lightroom. And then the light round is over. Are you ready, Ski Day? Time for the night round. Let's start with Justin in New York. Justin. Booyah, Jim from Long Island. Jim, nice I step. love your show, and Thank I you. love your hour on Squawk when ah, you pick it with David. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to know about ARI. I'm a young investor. I got about 10 to 12% of my portfolio in it. Safe dividend play, buy, holder sell. I don't know. I hate commercial real estate. I mean, honestly, I think that's the next thing that's going to roll over. That's what this market is telling me. I mean, you can you can uh, stay the course in it, but that's where I think the real weakness is coming next after housing and after autos and after chemicals, after papers, after semis, commercial real estate. Emily in Arkansas. Emily. Jim, with Six Flags near its 52-week low and paying a good dividend, could this be a buy for the long term? I was flummoxed about why they did so badly. It was really quite a surprise to me, so I cannot recommend the stock. Uh, let's go to Abby in Virginia. Abby. Hey, Jim. First time, long time. Okay. Got to ask you about Northrop. Great earnings. Re uh, accelerated this has uh, been, buyback I, program. I, it has been unbelievable to me, Abby. Unbelievable to me. The defense stocks, until we get to the midterm elections, these stocks are in such a bear market, it is shocking. They've all reported good numbers. Nobody cares. Let's go to Chan in Tennessee. Chan. Hey, Jim. Big booyah to you from Tennessee. Good to have you. Hey, my question is on MRO, Marathon Petroleum. Uh, been uh, had good returns before, but I'm getting uh, well. Unless recently. it has got yield protection right now, the bear, the stocks, the the oil stocks are in bear market. I mean, I know I got a lot. I mean, I'm saying a lot of stuff's in bear market, but that's just obvious. But the oils are definitely. Let's go to Guy in New York. Guy. 
Hey, Jim, big booyah from Staten Island, New York. Okay. Hey, I want to thank you for everything you do for uh, being the voice of reason, all you do for uh, great advice. Thank sure you so much. Thank you. Hey, Jim, Marvel Technology Group, uh, I picked it up in the mid-20s, low-20s. Is it a buy, hold, sell? I got to tell you, Mar- I mean, if fundamentals matter, this is a buy because that's how well this company's doing. But like I said, in a lot of other situations, fundamentals don't matter right now. The stock's going lower. Let's go to Don in Massachusetts. Don. Hi, Jim. Don. Yeah. I just want to say I'm glad we've got you to coach us through these difficult Thank you. I'm sure like trying. I'm yeah. sure trying. It's not easy. Go ahead. Boy, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Jim, what, what are your thoughts on this management and development stock symbol RDFN? You know, that was the Redfin was... The, that was the stock, RDFN. That was the first stock to tell you that residential real estate was cratering. Uh, and, and that's what sent me. Uh, that was the one that sent me to fly, uh, just run it for cover. Sell, sell, sell. So, no way. No way, no how. Jerry in California. Jerry. Yeah, Mr. Kramer, how you doing today? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm a little bit concerned about this TRP, TransCanada. I've had it for a long time. I know I have too much of it, but be that as it is. Uh, what, do, what do you see happening? Well, what's your pipelines idea are in tremendous bear market mode. None of them is being saved by a high yield. I think that this represents tremendous value, TransCanada, but that does not mean it won't go down. I am not against owning the stock, though, because it has got a valuable business and it's got a coverage of that dividend. Let's go to Jordan in Florida. Jordan. Hey, how's it going, Kramer? All right, how about you? Pretty good. Hey, I was curious about Smart Global Holdings. Good time to buy, good time to sell. I do not know Smart Global Holdings, and I will have to do some work because this is one awful market. Let's take one more. Andrew in Texas. Andrew. Hey, Jim. Love the uh, books and the TV show. I uh, was wanting to know about ETM and if the new James Dolan news that came out recently. I, I, is I honestly thought that, this stock, I thought that this company stock would bottom. Uh, radio broadcasting, I felt, had more worth to it than it does seem to have. And the stock cannot seem to find any any sort of footing here at all. Uh, it is very inexpensive. But again, that is been the continuum theme of this lightning round. Inexpensive does not equal a stock that can stop going down. Let's go to David in Illinois. David. Jim, Chenier Energy Partners, CQP. It's prospects? I think its prospects are bright. We're going to be a big export of liquefied natural gas. It yields more than 7%, and it can pay for that. So I think that it's okay but remember, that easily could go to 8 9% before it bottoms. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. You may have heard that there's an election coming up next week. But while everybody else is focused on what that means for Congress or various governor's mansions all over the country, I want to focus on something smaller. Voters in San Francisco will decide on Proposition C, a small 0.5% tax on large businesses that would be used to potentially double the city's homelessness relief budget. Now, I think this is a microcosm for the country at large, not just San Francisco, because the question here is very simple. What do businesses owe to their communities? San Francisco has become one of the least affordable places to live in America because there's so much tech money floating around, but nobody likes paying taxes. And you could argue that this is the kind of thing that drives businesses away. On the one hand, you've got guys like Twitter's Jack Dorsey coming out as one of the leading voices against this ballot initiative. On the other hand, you've got Mark Benioff of Salesforce, who argues that this is just pretty binary. Either you're for homelessness or you're against homelessness. 
which is good to be. Now, Salesforce's stock has gotten slammed today along with the rest of the cloud names, but this is a fabulous company and one that has a long history of being committed to philanthropy. So let's welcome back Mark Benioff, the chairman, co-founder, and co-CEO of Salesforce. Hear more about Proposition C and how his company's doing. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, it's great to be with you, and uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Now, Mark, you have uh, been outspoken, including a fabulous op-ed piece in the New York Times about the social responsibility of business. Thank you. And some of us are kind of mystified. Like, we do think yeah. it, you're either for homelessness or against homelessness. Tell us, isn't it as binary as that, or I, I, I just, because I was homeless once, don't get it and I'm too biased? Well, Jim, you, you understand the situation here in San Francisco very well. I know you have a personal story. We're in a crisis of homelessness, and it's a very serious situation in San Francisco. I mean, at the same time, it's really become a crisis of inequality, exactly like you said. It's the best of times and the worst of times. Our companies are ripping. Our economy is ripping here in San Francisco. And you can see great companies emerge, like Salesforce, like Twitter, like Square, like Dropbox. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Hundreds of billions of dollars of market capitalization. You've reported on many of those companies on your program. And yet, at the same time, a huge crisis of homelessness. 7,500 homeless individuals on our streets in San Francisco. 1,200 homeless families with two kids on average each. This is unacceptable. We can't have on one side the most prosperous, most successful, and as you can see behind me, the most beautiful city in the world. And on the other hand, we have a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. This is turning into a crisis of inaction and indifference, and we need to just put a stake in the ground and stop it. And that's why I'm asking everyone to vote yes on Proposition C. Well, yeah, I, I know Chuck Robbins very well from Cisco, as do you. And he's saying this of 7,000 chronically homeless in Santa Clara County, and which is why he's backing a similar proposition, even though he knows it will uh, cost Cisco money. So, I mean, given the tax return, the change in taxes, given the fact that there are so many people who are rich, I mean, you got like Chuck, you, I mean, who's opposing this thing? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, Jim, Cisco is for Proposition C, Salesforce is for Proposition C, and of course many of our elected politicians like Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein and others are also for Proposition C. But the real issue is this, you cannot extract businesses from our city. And look, you have a beautiful office here in San Francisco, but you know, as I know, you can go downstairs and by just walking a few blocks from here, you're going to be in a very serious homeless situation. And it's also a crisis of cleanliness. This has turned into a situation where our streets have never been really um, dirtier and have all kinds of problems that we've been re have seen reporting on in national media. And this, right. this needs to come to an end. That's why I'm for Proposition C. Right, well, Mark mentioned I, I was out in San Francisco two times ago, and there was a robbery right in front of me at Walgreens. And uh, I asked the police what's going to happen to that person. It's basically catch and release. They have no place. You have no homeless shelters. They have, they didn't, the police do not know what to do, was my understanding, after witnessing this robbery right in front of me. They don't know what to do. Jim, yeah, and Jim, I mean, I was so sorry. You were here for Dreamforce. And we heard some reports like that from many of our customers where they had adverse situations. You saw a robbery with someone who was homeless in Walgreens. And look, that's not, it's, it's got to come to an end. And that's why I'm supporting Proposition C, because of incidents like you have had here in our city. Now, Jack Dorsey is vocal 
uh, against your view. Uh, wealthy makes a lot of money. What, just, this, this is just the old Milton Friedman argument that business owes nothing to community. What business does is make money for business and shareholders. Well, you're exactly right, Jim. The question is, is this is the business a business business or is the business a business improving the state of the world? And, you know, of course, you know what side I go on. I'm I'm all about how do we use business as the greatest platform for change and Salesforce has worked on homelessness here in San Francisco. We've given more than 50 million dollars to our public schools. We've given away more than a quarter billion dollars overall, done three and a half million hours of of volunteerism. We run 40,000 nonprofits for free. We totally view business as the greatest platform for change. And when we're talking about a tax that is one half of 1%, one half of 1% to deal with the number one crisis in our city, how can we do anything else but to vote yes on C? I agree. Now, let me, well, that's my personal view. Obviously, people could have different opinions. I just have, while I have you, I've got to ask you, I know how important you think IBM is to the state of our country, that it's just an important company. I know that you get along terrifically with Red Hat. Any view on the Red Hat IBM type and what it means for the cloud business? Well, I just thought this was a great acquisition today. I think this is exactly what IBM should be doing. I'd like to congratulate Ginny. She has made a fabulous move acquiring Red Hat. And they're fantastic. And they've got a world-class management team, world-class products. We use it at Salesforce. Everybody knows they're the, they are the heart of the cloud today, and now they're the heart of IBM. So congratulations to all IBM. Great job. All right, let's leave it there. That's Mark Benioff, chairman, co-founder, and co-CEO of Salesforce. Great to see you, Mark, as always. Thank Thanks, you. Jim. Vote yes on C. Remember, C is for Kramer. <laughs> Stay with me. Stay with me, buddy. Don't be fooled by these up openings. We need a down opening if we're going to find any footing. That's the gospel. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.